With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. On July 27, 2020, Diana Davis, a 50-year-old certified nursing assistant, disappeared from the Seattle-Tacoma, Washington area. Two days later, her car was discovered on fire in a downtown Tacoma alley. Then, on August 5th, Diana's body was found more than an hour east of Tacoma in a wooded area. It's been over three years since Diana was killed, and investigators are still searching for the person responsible. Hey everyone, welcome back to Detective Perspective. My name is Derek Lavasser. I'm a licensed private investigator and former police detective. And each week I'll be covering an unsolved case in story format. I'll then give you my perspective on the investigation and provide contact information for the individuals and organizations connected to the case so that if you have any tips, you can contact them directly and maybe you can help solve a case. And if you're someone who's interested in true crime, specifically unsolved cases, and you would like to hear my opinion on those investigations, please consider subscribing whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever platform you use. Okay, so this case this week, Diana Davis. This is a relatively new case, and we've been doing older cases uh, leading up to this, which I feel like need the coverage. But this is a case to me that stood out because, as I said, it's relatively new. And you would think, as you hear the specifics of how this case went down, I kind of went over a little bit of it in the teaser. Her car being discovered on fire, her body being found at a different location. And then as far as her history, uh, her dating uh, practices, you would think that this case would already be solved. You would think that with today's technology and the ability to trace GPS coordinates and see who she was talking to on specific dating sites, all that good stuff, that this case would be solved, but we're covering it here. So obviously it isn't. So knowing the specifics of this case and, and feeling like it should be solved, I wanted to put it out there to you guys. I feel like maybe there's someone out there who's listening or watching this who may have information or may live in the area and have access to a personal security system camera that police haven't checked yet. And maybe there's something on that footage that may be helpful. Now it is three years later. So if you don't have a huge uh, storage device, the, the video footage might be gone. However, there may be something you remember from that time after I jog your memory. So I wanted to cover this case. The whole goal of what we do here is to give a voice to the voiceless and to give some exposure to a case that, in my opinion, hasn't gotten enough or a case where I feel like maybe there's something we can do. Diana did have two children, Chris and Christina. 
They're still out there. They're still searching for answers. So as long as they are, we will as well. So we're going to dive right into it. But before we do, real quick, just a little bit of a qualifier here. If you uh, haven't put it together already, apologies for last week. I was very sick and I'm still kind of recovering from it. I feel fine, but I don't sound great. I'm still a little tired and my voice is just way far behind. I'm still very congested and a little raspy. So I wanted to apologize ahead of time if at points during this episode, it's not as clear as, or as crisp as it usually is. Uh, I'm going to do my best. And fortunately, this isn't live and I have a great editor in Shannon. So uh, if I got to do multiple takes, which I normally do have to do, I, I will do them here to try to give you the best uh, episode that I can. So again, apologies, bear with me. But with that all out of the way, let's dive into the case. Diana Davis was born on June 25th, 1970 in Korea. When she was young, her family moved to Eastern Washington. After graduating from high school, Diana went to college in Western Washington, where she was known to be a free-spirited, spunky person with a positive personality. Following her college years, Diana started working as a certified nursing assistant and caretaker. She settled in the Auburn area situated between Seattle and Tacoma and welcomed two children, a son Chris and a daughter Christina. Diana was a devoted mother who spent a lot of time with her children. Even when they became adults, she FaceTimed them on a daily basis. When Diana wasn't with her family, she enjoyed hanging out with her friends, watching Netflix, and tending to her garden at Proctor Community Garden in Tacoma. By late 2019, Diana wasn't in any serious relationships, but she had been searching for a long-term partner for many years. She used online dating services and typically went on one to two dates a week, often with businessmen, lawyers, and pilots. Finding a potential partner was never difficult for Diana. Her best friend Monica shared with KIRO7 that she was the type of person who talked to everybody. She was very personable, likable, and lovable. When the COVID pandemic began in early 2020, Diana took a break from dating because she was scared of catching the virus. Then, a month or two into the pandemic, Diana met a criminal defense attorney on Match.com. According to friends, he was persistent in going on a date with her, and she eventually gave in despite her concerns about COVID. Diana and the attorney hit it off, and she soon told her friend Monica that she wanted to pursue something with him. They started calling each other boyfriend and girlfriend, although they had an open relationship and could date other people, and it's important to note that during this time, Diana continued to live on her own in Auburn. On the morning of July 27th, Diana and her son Chris exchanged texts about her plans for the day, which included going to her garden. Then at 9.38 a.m., they FaceTimed for approximately 31 minutes. According to Unsolved Mysteries, Diana made it to the community garden by that afternoon where multiple witnesses had seen her. She spent time tending to her tomato plants and even texted her boyfriend a photo of a tomato she had harvested, promising to bring it to dinner. He responded, quote, sounds great. This is her last known phone communication with anyone. Now, I wanted to bring up this interaction with her boyfriend for two reasons. One, as I just said, it's her last known phone communication, but also there's a little bit of an interesting twist, and I don't really know exactly what to make of it, but it involves this tomato, and we're going to get to it in a little bit. Now, Diana never showed up for dinner that night, leading her boyfriend to call the police for a welfare check. When officers went to her place, she wasn't there. No one else heard from Diana that night. 
Her family found this unusual, but they didn't panic. Diana was known for always responding to messages except when she was at work or with someone. During those times, she would often turn off her phone to stay present, so the family figured she might be with someone and that's why she wasn't responding. The family's concern grew on July 28th when they still couldn't reach Diana. It was completely unusual for her not to talk to her kids and to disappear suddenly. On July 29th, both Diana's family and her boyfriend filed a missing persons report. The police conducted another check of her home, but Diana was nowhere to be found. Unsolved Mysteries reported that on that same day, Diana's family took matters into their own hands and went to speak to someone they felt could be connected to her disappearance, her ex-boyfriend. She had broken up with him because she wasn't as interested in him as he was with her, and after the breakup, he allegedly stalked her, calling her constantly, driving by her apartment, and showing up unannounced. Diana's brother and his wife went to the ex-boyfriend's house, which was not far from the community garden, and when they got there, they knocked on the door. The ex-boyfriend peered through the window, but he refused to open. When they insisted they wouldn't leave until he told them where Diana was, he finally opened the door and claimed he hadn't seen her in two months. Diana's brother and his wife left after this encounter. A few hours later, at 10.54 p.m., police received a call about a burning car in an alley in the 1600 block of Court E in downtown Tacoma. When an officer arrived, they found a fire consuming a silver 2013 Chevy Impala. The owner of the car was nowhere to be found. The license plate was gone, so the officer checked the VIN of the vehicle, which came back registered to Diana Davis. The officer then called dispatch to get Diana's information so that they could reach out to her about the car. The dispatcher ran Diana's name and found that she was currently entered as a missing person, so obviously concerns about her well-being intensified. The car was searched and Diana's purse was found, but her cell phone was missing. An investigation concluded that the fire started in the back seats and the trunk, suggesting someone had set the car on fire to destroy potential evidence. Unfortunately, there were no surveillance cameras in the area, so police were unable to see who was responsible for the fire. Diana's family was puzzled about the car in the alley. It wasn't close to the garden, and they didn't think Diana would go to that area so late in the evening. The family was heartbroken and desperate for answers about Diana. Her daughter, Christina, told a news outlet that she really was hopeful someone with information would come forward. She said the family missed Diana deeply, and they just wanted to know what was going on with her. With Diana's car being found on fire, her disappearance became highly suspicious. The King County Sheriff's Office and Tacoma Police Department joined forces to investigate with Detective Jack Nasworthy taking the lead. He reached out to the press, asking for information about Diana's car and any sightings of her between July 27th and July 29th. While fielding tips from the public, Detective Nasworthy focused on building a timeline of Diana's activities from the 27th to the 29th. He obtained a search warrant from her phone company to track her location. His findings revealed that on the 27th, Diana spoke to her son, briefly visited her workplace, stopped by her boyfriend's house in Tacoma to give him a houseplant, and then spent time at the community garden. Now, as I said earlier, while in the garden, Diana took a photo of a harvested tomato and sent it to her boyfriend, stating that she would bring it over for dinner. But here's the interesting part. She ended up leaving the tomato in the garden. She later drove around Tacoma in her Chevy Impala with no one following her. According to My Northwest, Diana made a stop at an Ace Hardware store in downtown Tacoma and stayed about 50 minutes from 5 p.m. to 5.50 p.m. She gave off the impression she was just passing time and she left without making any purchases. After leaving the Ace Hardware store, 
Diana drove north on the interstate to Seattle, ending up at Lumen Field near Mariner Stadium at 7.46 p.m. Her phone's last signal was there, and then the phone turned off immediately. Diana was never heard from again. Now, two things here. Nasworthy did look for surveillance footage at Lumen Field to see if Diana met anyone there, but there were no cameras in the parking lot. He also checked the Ace Hardware Store parking lot as well. Again, no cameras. Now, after building Diana's timeline, Detective Nasworthy had two potential suspects to investigate, one of them being Diana's boyfriend, the criminal defense attorney. He was the last person she talked to and one of the first people to report her missing. Nasworthy questioned Diana's boyfriend and he denied having any involvement in her disappearance. He did share that he and Diana had a serious discussion about their relationship the night before she went missing. Diana really wanted to get married, but the boyfriend wasn't interested in that and he said he preferred to keep their relationship open so that they could date other people. While all of this could seem suspicious on the surface, Nasworthy was able to quickly rule out the boyfriend of having anything to do with Diana's disappearance. According to Unsolved Mysteries, the boyfriend provided receipts from a grocery store trip on the 27th and various witness statements confirmed his whereabouts from the 27th to the 29th. Now, if that all wasn't enough, Nasworthy also obtained a search warrant for the boyfriend's phone. The location data showed that he was either at his home or at his Tacoma office during all relevant times. He was never near Diana's home, the community garden, or downtown Tacoma where the burned car was found. The boyfriend also passed the polygraph test where he denied any involvement in her disappearance. With Diana's boyfriend basically ruled out, Detective Nasworthy had another suspect to investigate, Diana's ex-boyfriend, the one who allegedly stalked her before she went missing and the one that Diana's brother went and visited after she disappeared. According to Unsolved Mysteries, Nasworthy tried to get a statement from the ex-boyfriend at his home, but he refused to talk to police. Fortunately, a neighbor across the street had a security camera that captured the movement in front of the ex-boyfriend's house. Nasworthy also got a search warrant for the ex-boyfriend's phone records and realized that he was nowhere near Diana on the 27th through the 29th. The surveillance footage coupled with the phone records seemingly ruled out the ex of having any direct involvement with Diana's disappearance. Then, on August 5th, a body was found about an hour and 20 minutes east of Tacoma near I-90. That afternoon, a woman was walking her dogs near Snoqualmie Pass when one of her dogs ran 25 yards into the woods. The woman followed the dog and was led to a half-buried body. She immediately called the police. Responding officers examined the body and believed it might be Diana Davis, so they immediately called Detective Nasworthy. He later told Unsolved Mysteries that after he arrived on scene, he wasn't immediately positive that the body belonged to Diana due to the advanced state of decomposition. The killer attempted to dig a grave, but gave up after only getting six inches in. He buried the body's lower half in a shallow grave, then covered the upper half with tree debris. This meant the upper part was more exposed to the elements and animals, speeding up decomposition and making the body unidentifiable upon observation alone. When investigators uncovered the lower half of the body, which was in a lesser state of decomposition, Nasworthy immediately noticed a leg tattoo that matched Diana's. He now believed the body was hers, however, no identifying belongings like her phone were found in the area, so he couldn't be 100% certain until an autopsy was completed. The King County Medical Examiner and a team of forensic anthropologists performed an autopsy on the remains. Within five days, they were able to officially identify them as belonging to Diana Davis. My Northwest reported that the autopsy concluded Diana's cause of death was repeated blunt force trauma to her head and face 
most likely with a hammer. Nasworthy noted that the high level of violence suggested a close and personal attack. He thought there was also a possibility that Diana may have been sexually assaulted, but due to the condition of her body, the examiner was unable to make that determination. Now, I want to pause here for a second and talk about this because this this gets thrown out a lot in true crime. And I'm not a forensic pathologist, not a medical examiner. I, I don't do this every day. And there are way better people, more qualified to talk about this. But And then you also have the psychological element of it. I'm not a forensic psychologist either. But I hear what people are saying when they say, you know, the violent nature of this attack could suggest that it was personal in nature, right? This crime of passion, this violent act where this person was hurting and was mad at their victim and therefore inflicted this level of pain. Yeah, that's true. That's very possible. I don't know what the statistics are behind it, but just coming from a normal person, couldn't it also be just a crime of convenience? And what I mean by that is if this individual is some sick person, right? And let's say, and I'm going to get more into this in my perspective, but let's say there's a disagreement or something goes wrong. Maybe he pushes it further than Diana wanted to go. He realizes that she may uh, implicate him in a crime or, or it could have been a sexual assault, could have been a rape, right? Where it was, there was no personal feelings in this. There wasn't any hatred, but maybe the closest thing to this assailant was a hammer or a bat or uh, uh, whatever it might be. And that was just the, the, the weapon of choice because that was the most convenient. It had nothing more to do with that. It's not that deep. And as far as assaulting her multiple times, again, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from what happened here, but I think it's just as likely that this person who may not be experienced in killing people may have struck her multiple times to ensure that she was dead. So I, I try not to get too caught up in the whole, oh, you know, the way she was killed. She was stabbed multiple times or she was struck in the face repeatedly. You know, that suggests that this person knew her and this was personal to them. Yeah, that's possible. But I don't want to discredit the idea that it's also possible that this individual just did it because they did it. And they thought that that was the best way to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish, which was to shut her up and make sure that she never spoke again. That It could be, I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to take away from what we're talking about here. I'm just trying to keep it in perspective for everyone because I feel like sometimes when an investigator or a storyteller says, you know, she was struck in the face multiple times, this, you know, that suggests it was a crime of passion. Maybe they knew this person. I feel like sometimes what we're actually doing is narrowing the field of vision as far as who our potential suspects are. And that's not necessarily a good thing because if we're only looking for people who had some emotional connection to this and and may have acted this way, we may be missing the actual suspect who didn't know her from a hole in the wall, didn't care about doing this, didn't have any previous encounters with her where they were upset with her. This was just a means to an end for them. So I'm just trying to keep that perspective as wide as we can so we don't find ourselves going down the wrong path and missing the right person. And as far as the sexual assault, you know, I hear different things on this because you could have uh, DNA, you could have semen on the body or in the vaginal canal that would su suggest some type of sexual encounter. You could have vaginal tearing. You could have uh, signs of holding the victim down by the arms or legs, fingerprint impressions. Uh, so there's a, a variety of things you may see if the person isn't this badly decomposed. 
But again, I don't like to go too far down that path because I do think there's a lot when it comes to this that's subjective to interpretation. And you could have multiple, we've seen it, you could have multiple examiners look at the same body and come to a different conclusion. So what's my takeaway here? Diana was brutally murdered. Point blank period. So I don't want to focus too much on the motive because, yes, if we knew for sure that this crime suggested or the way in which it was carried out, 100% guaranteed that the person who did this had a personal vendetta against Diana, sure, that'd be great. It would absolutely narrow the pool and it would make all of our jobs a lot easier. I just don't want to go off speculation because that's really what it is, uh, a profile, right, and have it be the wrong person. Because then we're going to end up where we are right now with no answers. So again, not to take anything away from that. I just want you guys leaving this with, yeah, there's no doubt about it. Whoever did this, they're a monster. The fact that they were able to do this to another human being says more about them than anything else. As to why they did it, we may never know unless we catch them. Now, the medical examiner was able to determine that Diana had likely been in the wooded area since July 27th, shortly after she went missing. The medical examiner also was able to recover male DNA from under one of Diana's fingernails. Now, the sample isn't big enough to enter into the National DNA Database. However, it is sufficient for a one-to-one -one comparison. Now, we know the sample was tested against Diana's boyfriend, and it did not match. It's unclear if the sample had been tested against her ex-boyfriend or anyone else for that matter. After the news of Diana's death broke, her daughter told the media that she was not prepared to learn that her mom had been murdered. Christina said, quote, to hear somebody just kind of threw her in the woods is absolutely sickening to me. I don't understand why people would want to murder such a sweet, beautiful, innocent soul. Christina went on to say that the family wanted justice, but it wasn't going to bring Diana back. Nothing would ever be the same again. Diana's son, Chris, was also struggling with the loss. He told Fox 13 News, quote, every night it's hard to sleep. It's hard to eat every day. I've dealt with loss before, but when it's something like this, so unnatural, unexpected, so untimely, I can't really fathom it. This is real life. This isn't a TV show or a movie. There is somebody really out there who had the capability of killing my mom. Chris added, quote, somebody cut my mom's life short. My mom just turned 50 and I feel like she had 50 more years in front of her. She was full of life. Chris ended his statement by saying the family was really hoping people would come forward to help find Diana's murderer. After Diana was laid to rest, Detective Nasworthy continued his investigation. At this point, he had a theory about what had happened to Diana. He told Unsolved Mysteries that he believed Diana didn't actually plan to meet her boyfriend for dinner on the 27th, which is why she left a tomato in the garden. Nasworthy thought that Diana might have been upset about their talk regarding not wanting to get married and wanting to see other people. So, instead of going to her boyfriend's for dinner, Diana set up a date with another man as a way of saying, look, I can date other people too. Nasworthy theorized that after leaving the garden, Diana went to Ace Hardware to pass the time before meeting up with her date at Lumen Field. After leaving Ace, she drove to Seattle, parked at the field, and turned off her phone to focus. Unfortunately, she was then tragically murdered. Nasworthy also believes it's possible Diana's car was used to transport her body to Snoqualmie Pass, an area the killer was likely familiar with as it wasn't a type of place you would stumble upon accidentally. Because of this location, Nasworthy thinks the killer is an outdoorsy type who likes hunting, hiking, or even camping. 
Nasworthy further believes the killer knew Diana was from the Tacoma area, and that's why he left her car burning there. He theorized that the killer is also familiar with Tacoma, which explains how he was able to choose a spot without cameras to burn the vehicle. Nasworthy thought it was possible that Diana met this man on a dating website right before their date, or maybe she had already been on a date with him in the past. Nasworthy suspected this man had a professional career as well because, as I said earlier, Diana tended to only date businessmen, pilots, lawyers, people with established careers. Now, I want to take a second here and just give another wrinkle. Because when you think about those types of individuals, what do they also have in common? They travel a lot. So it's very possible that Diana, maybe not by choice, was dating a lot of men who had professions that required them to travel throughout the country. And so these men, as they're traveling from state to state, are hopping on these websites, finding women in whatever city they're spending the night in, and going out on a date, potentially hooking up, and going on their way. Maybe this is an angle that Nasworthy had already looked into, but I can tell you right now, if I were working this case, these are the types of individuals that I'd be looking for. Now, before I give you my opinion on all of this, I want to note that Diana's best friend, Monica, told Unsolved Mysteries that she disagrees with parts of Nasworthy's theory. She doesn't think Diana would meet up with someone other than her boyfriend for a date during COVID. However, Monica did concede that it wasn't impossible. She mentioned that if Diana did arrange a date, it would have been with someone she already knew as she was wary of strangers due to COVID. Now, as far as my thoughts on this, I don't necessarily disagree with Monica, and I'll be the first to admit she knows Diana way better than I ever will. But I will say if there was something that occurred that maybe caused Diana to act differently than she normally would, maybe out of frustration or anger, she could go outside the scope of how she would normally act, especially as it pertains to what her friends and family would normally expect from her. And what I mean by that is, yeah, under certain conditions, Diana probably conducted herself in a pretty similar pattern. However, if something threw her off, maybe a conversation with her boyfriend the night before that, that frustrated her and maybe she wanted to prove a point, could she go outside what she would normally do during COVID in order to try to get something across to her boyfriend that, hey, I'm not going to be here forever? That's possible. It's also possible that Monica's right. I'm not saying at all that it's that this person responsible for her death isn't someone she already knew. In fact, we're going to get to it in a little bit, but a little bit of a foreshadow here. I think more than likely it was someone she knew from the past. Now, hoping to find the man that Diana possibly went on a date with, Nasworthy obtained a search warrant for her known dating profiles, Match.com and a website related to BDSM. According to Fox 13 News, Diana's last login on Match.com was a month before she went missing. Details on the BDSM website haven't been released, but as far as I can tell, the site doesn't provide any obvious leads either. Without Diana's phone, Nasworthy had no idea if she had used any other dating sites. To learn about that potential possibility, Nasworthy asked the public for tips, hoping to find men who might have matched with her or even dated her from a different platform. Unfortunately, no solid tips came in and the case stalled. In 2022, the Tacoma Police and King County Sheriff's Office began working with the Seattle Police and the FBI to solve Diana's case. In September of 2022, more than two years after Diana's death, 
Authorities held a press conference to remind everyone about the case and how it was still unsolved. Detective Nasworthy said, quote, This person went through a lot of effort to cover up this crime. Not only did they take her out in the woods, bury her in a place where they probably didn't think she'd ever be located, but they also went through the effort to burn her car to hide evidence. And that's not something you're going to see usually in a random crime. Since the press conference, there have been very few official updates in Diana's case. However, some people online believe a potential person of interest emerged in April of 2023. That month, a man named Brett Gitchell was charged with the kidnapping and murder of Letitia Martinez Cosman in Seattle. Media outlets reported that Brett and Letitia went to a Mariners game, which was held right next to Lumen Field. Following the game, Letitia vanished, and almost two weeks later, she was found strangled in a wooded area 20 minutes away in Renton. Brett had burned Letitia's car to hide evidence and also attacked her adult son. After Brett's arrest, many people online noticed that Letitia's murder shares similarities with Diana's. A possible first date near Lumen Field, a burned car, and a burial in the woods. Now, some people have theorized that Brett might be Diana's killer, but as far as I can tell, the Tacoma police have not commented on this publicly. That being said, Diana's friends and family are still fighting for justice. All right, so let's dive into my perspective. And I know I always say, oh, this is going to be a quick one, and then it's never quick. But this one actually is going to be quick, and I'll tell you why. I agree with a lot of what Nasworthy has had to say about this case. I think he's spot on. I definitely think there's a situation here where there was a conversation the night before between Diana and, and the boyfriend, and she didn't like what was said. She thought the relationship was going one way. He clearly felt that it was going another. So she goes over to the garden. I, I think she may have already had a date lined up. She already knew what she was going, going to be doing. And and I as I said earlier, it's probably someone that she's dated before and may have been in town again, which is why the phone might be missing, by the way. If there's there's messages that are going back and forth that maybe on a like, I don't know, a secretive app that was only on the phone, then it wouldn't be on her phone records like a Snapchat or something like that. There may not be a record of it. Um, but that being said, I think she knew she was going out that night. So she goes to the garden. She sends the picture of the tomato uh, full well knowing she has no intention on going there. She leaves the tomato in the garden well before anything happens. That's a verifiable fact. Nasworthy has already checked that all out. It checks out. And, and just a quick uh, to go back to what we talked about in the episode, as suspicious as the ex-boyfriend might be and, and you know, the boyfriend knowing what he knew, I, I they, it appears they were both thoroughly vetted. Um, and I would, if I had to guess, if I had to guess the DNA that we have uh, was also compared to the ex-boyfriend. That's my guess. But even if it wasn't, you can't be in two places at once. If he's seen on camera going into his residence and then he doesn't leave that entire day, well, he can't kill her on the 27th if he never leaves his house. So that would be exculpatory evidence. So either way, I don't think the ex-boyfriend or the boyfriend are good for this murder. So let's get back to what I think as far as what happened and how it lines up with what Nasworthy has already said. She knows she's going on a date. It, she knows the time in which she has to be there. She knows how long it's going to take to get there, which is why she goes to Ace Hardware. We've all done it, right? You have a place that you're going to be meeting someone, maybe not necessarily a date. And instead of going home, you just stop somewhere to kill some time. We've all done it. It's super common. It makes perfect sense. 
So she's at the hardware store, doesn't buy a single thing, and heads on up to Seattle and heads over near Lumen Field. And although I wouldn't suggest doing this ever, turning off your phone, especially when you're meeting up with someone who you may not know that well, it does appear that that was a common behavior for Diana. So I'm not going to knock her for it. We're just going to acknowledge that the phone going off at that time is not that suspicious because it's something she was known to do in the past. But what we know, based on her friends and family, is that when that phone went off, it was usually because she was meeting with someone, more specifically a date. So is it a big leap to believe that more than likely she was meeting someone for a date? I don't think so. More than likely she went up to Seattle knowing that she had someone there that she was going to be meeting for dinner or whatever the case may be. And as soon as she got out of the car or as soon as she parked, she shut off her phone, which she had done in the past. And as Nasworthy said, something happens that night. Maybe it was premeditated. Maybe this individual who had met up with her before kind of softened her up a little bit, made her drop her guard a little bit, had some nefarious intentions going into it and knew what they were going to do that night. Or this was something that just kind of went awry where that's where the hammer kind of comes in. And it could mean one of two things, right? And we don't know for sure it was a hammer, but it could have been a, some other blunt force object similar to a hammer. But it could mean one of two things. One, sick individual who found gratification by using an item like that during the murder. Or as I said earlier, this was the closest thing in reach, right? Something goes wrong. There's a sexual assault, something of that nature. And there's a fight that occurs, which is why DNA was found under Diana's fingernails. That would be a sign of a defensive wound. And during that assault, the individual grabbed a hammer or something like a hammer strikes her once, strikes her twice, incapacitates her, and then continues to strike her to kill her. And then as Nasworthy said, this person knows the area where he eventually leaves her body, gets a little spooked that maybe someone's going to come by, doesn't dig a deep enough grave, but figures based on where it's located, it's far enough off the beaten path where no one will find her. And based on what we know, that may have been the case if it wasn't for this dog that, as I said, ran 25 yards off the walk to, to locate Diana. And the burning of the car, I don't think it takes a detective to figure that one out. Of course, they might have been in her vehicle together. The, the vehicle might have been used later to transport her body, although that would be very risky to do that, but it's possible. And yeah, there's no doubt about it. They, they brought the car to a location where they knew or assumed there were no cameras, and they decided to light it on fire to hopefully destroy any type of trace evidence that would potentially be left behind. Uh, fortunately for us, uh, the individual did not expect Diana's body to be recovered and more importantly, did not expect anything that was recovered to be viable in a potential DNA test. So that's where we are right now. We do have some DNA. If we find a potential suspect, we can connect them to this crime. If they're not someone who had a previous relationship with Diana, and fits the, the the different criteria here as far as the dates in question, July 27th, um, and may have been known to date people in the past. This could be something where we could really solve this case. And that's why I wanted to get it out to you guys, because I do think you or, or someone you know may know Diana or know someone she dated, and this could get the ball rolling. As I said earlier, just finding a different dating app that she may have used that Detective Nasworthy is not familiar with. He may be able to get a warrant for that website to 
see the conversations that Diana was having on that platform. And if we're really lucky, maybe she was having a conversation on one of those platforms that happened relatively recently and around the time in which she possibly went on this date. So that's where we are right now. We have a date, a time, a potential location where Diana met up with her offender. And we know the path in which Diana was brought back and left at this at this park and then also her car was burned so as i mentioned all these different locations this may be something that rings a bell for someone out there who's watching or listening to this episode uh of maybe a person who would be familiar with all three of these locations and may have been dating around the time of july 27 2020 and that's where you come in if you have information we need you to come forward so real quickly just to recap Diana Davis was last verifiably seen at 5.50 p.m. on July 27, 2020 at an Ace Hardware near downtown Tacoma in Washington. Phone records show that within two hours, she was at Lumen Field in Seattle. And on July 29th, Diana's silver 2013 Chevy Impala was found burning in an alley in the 1600 block of Court E in downtown Tacoma. On August 5th, her body was found near Snoqualmie Pass, and her phone has never been recovered. In addition to wanting to speak to anyone who knows about Diana's murder, detectives want to talk to anyone who saw Diana and or her car between July 27th and July 29th, as well as anyone who might have matched with her or dated her in the past. If you have any information, you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. And my final words on this one are really simple based on where we are right now. It's this beginning of December as I'm filming this episode, and I'm thinking about Chris and Christina, Diana's children. We covered a lot of cases this year, and we talked about a lot of families that have been affected uh, exponentially, and their lives will never be the same. And I know why, and you know why we're covering these cases. We want to spread the message about these unresolved stories with the potential that maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to solve one of them. That's the goal here. But I think the silver lining in listening to these stories for, for, for me and for you is that we can find value in the fact that around the holidays, I think we all have things that we complain about, that we wish were better. And I know without a doubt that Chris and Christina and every other family that we've talked about on Detective Perspective this year uh, would give anything just to have their loved ones back. So as I leave this year, thinking about all the cases that we covered, that's what I'm taking with me. Yes, we're going to continue to fight for justice, but at minimum, it makes me more grateful for what I have and the fact that I can still pick up the phone and call most of the people that are closest to me in my life. The people we talk about each week, they don't have that luxury. And so I think that if anything you take from this case, it's that to talk to the people you love the most and to understand that tomorrow's not promised. And even if it's promised for you, it may not be promised for the people you care about. So don't take it for granted. As I said on social media, for some of you who may have caught it, uh, this was supposed to come out last week. And thinking about family and friends and just talking about them now, they have all told me uh, that I'm burning the wick at both ends. I have a lot going on right now, and I'm extremely blessed and fortunate to be in this position. Uh, But they've been telling me for a while that I need to slow down, and it's very apparent 
that my body is is starting to tell me that as well. So this is a good opportunity during the holidays to re- recover and refresh myself both mentally and physically and get ready for 2024 where we'll be back with Detective Perspective doing more cases uh, like we never left. And I just want to, you know, get ready for that year and enjoy time with the family. And like I said, get get 100% again and get ready for the new year because we got a lot in store. Trust me, things that you guys don't even know about. Crime Weekly is still going to be out there every week. But like I said, we're going to be... Uh, shutting it down for the rest of the year for Detective Perspective so we can get things in order, I can get back to 100% health, and we can keep it rolling. So I just want to say thank you to every single one of you who has tuned in every single week, whether you're listening or watching. This was a new thing that I started. I didn't know where it was going to go, and I can see the potential now. I, I My vision for what this was when I initially started it's, it's finally becoming a realization. I'm super excited for the potential of what we could do in the future. There's some things going on behind the scenes that may even help us grow this channel more, that may help get the message out about what we're trying to do, and most importantly, get the message out about the cases we're covering. So again, thank you to everyone who's been here all year with me. Uh, we'll be back next year. And, and listen, if you're someone who is like, whoa, what am I going to do? I love true crime. I want to continue... Uh, hearing about it and talking about it. Well, listen, I might have an an opportunity for some of you that you may be interested in, and this might be the perfect time to do it. So I've said before, and I'll say it again, I could not do what I'm doing here without the team that I have around me. Shout out to Shannon, uh, my editor. She's amazing. And shout out to Haley Gray, who is a researcher and writer for the show as well. She's also incredible. And, and that's what I want to talk to you about right now. Listen, a lot of you guys listen to these cases and you want to be involved. You want to know more about it and you're doing your research on your own. Well, why not take your skill set to the next level? And this is where you might be able to do that. Haley Gray, like I said, works on Detective Perspective, has now came up with a training program to teach you how to research and write scripts for true crime podcasts. And this is called True Crime Podcast Training. And this training is 100% online, and it's taught by Haley Gray and certified teacher Andrea Marshbank. Now, a little bit more about Haley, because I could tell you everything about her, but she's got seven plus years of experience working alongside True Crime Podcasts like Detective Perspective, but also My Favorite Murder and many more podcasts that I'm absolutely certain you have heard of and listened to. So whether you're seeking a full-time career or a side gig, At True Crime Podcast Training, you will learn to use archival databases and other tools essential for researching true crime podcasts ethically. So, if this sounds interesting to you, you can head on over to truecrimepodcasttraining.com today, and you can use the code DETECTIVE for $150 off any course. Go take a look at their online programs. They're awesome. Once again, that's truecrimepodcasttraining.com. Use the code DETECTIVE to get $150 off any course. That's going to do it for me, guys. I survived. I got through it. Um, I still have my voice. It's amazing. Again, can't thank you enough for being here with me each and every week. I will see you after the new year. Stay safe out there. Happy holidays.